You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, one of my very favorite stories in the entire Bible, though I feel like I say that a lot, but this for real this time, one of my very favorite stories in the Bible poses a question that I think is one of the most pertinent questions that we could ask today as well. Let me set it up for you. There's a time in Israel's history, if you remember, we're studying this idea of Emmanuel, God with us, and God was perfectly with Adam and Eve in the garden. He will perfectly be with us um, in eternity. And then you have this unique time at Christmas where it is Emmanuel, God with us. But still, throughout the Bible, we see this thing called the Emmanuel principle that says God is with us, God is with us, God is with us, God is with us, over and over and over throughout, especially the Old Testament, I will be with you, I will be your God, you will be my people. Now the odd thing is because Israel has this unique promise, they went through, as you, if you know your history, they went through quite a few ups and downs. And as they went through ups and downs, this one today actually, they're in a particularly low time and they're going, Emmanuel, God with us, but what the heck, why are things so difficult right now? And so there's a little question in the book of Judges that you might miss that I want to show you that just simply says this. It says, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? I'll show you what all this is. It's a whole bunch of bad stuff going on, and that's why this person asks this particular question. If God is with us, why is all this stuff happening? And we might even ask the same question. This is why I say it's so pertinent. I think we would ask it today. If Emmanuel, if really, like if this is true, if God is with us, why is all this stuff happening in the world? And you can look on a, on a global scale. You can, um, you can look and see what's going on. You can see um, Ukraine and Russia. Remember, like when that started, it was such a huge deal. And now all of a sudden, as human beings, for many of us, it's just sort of been like, yeah, I kind of know that's out there. And it's still happening. And it's still bad. But I, we've sort of... Uh, largely moved on. I feel like a lot of people when I talk to them, like it was a big deal at once and then, because it's like there's just more and more and more that just keeps coming, especially on a, on a, um, a global scale. I looked at the Department of Defense website and as of June, you know how many countries we have troops in? They list 40 different countries that we have troops in, but then there's another at least 10,000 and then another group that says are unspecified or undisclosed to a number of other countries that are unspecified or undisclosed, undisclosed because they don't want to list it on their website. That's one nation and we have troops all over the world. There are things happening everywhere and, and, uh, or, and especially if, even if it's not happening there, there's potential for bad things to happen everywhere. And we go, if God is with us, why do we need troops everywhere? Why, why would all these bad things, why, why could that possibly happen? Or if you think about it, even on, a, on a, a national scale, we live in a time where unbiblical values, unchristian values are um, paraded around and celebrated loudly. And so it's becoming more difficult for those of us that call Christ our Lord and Savior sometimes to live in this time. I look around, I see people living more scared than they used to. I look and it just seems like, like everything's just on fire all the time here in America, really all over the world. I mean, you, you, could, you can sit down and you can, um, every morning, every single morning, don't you think you could read the newspaper, or open up the website or get on social media or something and just be given a new reason to have despair that day? And so we could ask the same question. Merry Christmas, by the way. Um, we could ask this question as well. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? 
Why is this happening? There's a few reasons for it. I want to give you one at least today. Um, Sometimes something sort of, I I use the term blocks Emmanuel, God with us. Like it blocks in the sense of I don't, I can't see it. And sometimes it's just like personal pain or hurt or frustration. Like um, some of you know my story. I was looking for jobs. I was at IBM and finished an MBA in international business. I have a Spanish degree. And I was just ready to, I don't know what I was going to do. I was, I was ready to go the business route. And, um, and I was looking for a job. And it was during, and then it was September, it was fall 2001, September 11, 2001. And I went through a season of about a year of looking at jobs I was overqualified for. I had a, a, an in, like I knew somebody, and I didn't even get calls back. I didn't, no one even re- responded to my email in a lot of cases. And so what happened was I remember during that time just going, I know God is with me. Oh, gosh, it sure doesn't, sure doesn't seem like it. Why is all this happening? Why doesn't God do the thing that I think he ought to do if he's really with me? And so sometimes it's times like that where you just, I mean, a person can only take so much like rejection and where I just had seasons where I would just sort of shut down and, and just, I just, I can't even, I just can't take any more rejection. I'm going to, where is God in this? And sometimes that's, that's why uh, is because maybe Emmanuel in a sense is sort of blocked out because of maybe just some personal hurt like that or personal rejection or things like that that are happening in your life. So what I'm going to share with you today is not just the only reason it's not the only answer to that question. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? But I will remind you of a couple things. That God has left us indwelt by his spirit. For those who call Christ Lord and Savior, for those who are Christians, you are indwelt by his spirit. And we talked a few weeks ago about being around those who are a spirit indwelt, not just going and living life on your own. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? That's still the question. Let me give you the story. You've got the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, sometimes called the law, and they have history in them, but they're generally the law is what we refer to them as, and it's got the history of Israel um, predominantly, um, especially starting in Exodus, focused around this guy, Moses, and then at the end, Moses dies, and then his successor is named, and his name is Joshua. Um, So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then the next books really get into the history of Israel, Chronicles, Kings, that kind of, Samuel, that kind of thing. Um, And Joshua is the next leader after Moses. And then they go into a time of the judges. And if you've read the book of Judges, I'm going to try to sum up for you what is happening over and over and over in the book of Judges. Some people have three phases. In fact, I think I've taught it before with three different phases. I'm going to add a fourth. In the book of Judges, what you see of the nation Israel is you see this cycle of rebellion, repentance, God sends a rescuer, and then there is restoration. You see this cycle, rebellion, repentance, rescuer, Okay, I made sure I put them in the right order. Rebellion, repentance, rescuer, and then restoration. And you see this over and over and over throughout the book of Judges with the people of Israel. So you see that they are restored, that they're doing great. God is blessing them. They are, they are receiving his favor. And then they rebel against him. And then something happens to turn them to repentance. And then God sends a rescuer to restore them. And then you would think that we would go, oh, well, great. Well, we'll never make that mistake again until about a chapter or verse later, and then they go, hey, we should try this thing on our own. 
called the sin of self-sufficiency. And they go, huh, God was nice for a season. We should try something else, though. Then they go into rebellion. And after rebellion, at some point, they start turning towards repentance, and God sends a rescuer as they're repenting, and it brings them back to a place of restoration. Oh, good. Well, surely they'll get it after just a couple times, and on and on and on throughout the book of Judges. Okay? Um, now we ask the question, like, why in the world don't you just get it? Like, shouldn't that cycle happen once and then like write a book about it and then everybody go, hey, listen, let's not do this again. It didn't go well last time we rebelled against God. I'll show you why in just a minute here. Rebellion, repentance, God sends a rescuer, and then there is restoration. So I want to pick up in the middle of one of these cycles. It is they have gone through rebellion. They have gone through this period of repentance. God has sent a rescuer, and he has subdued the king of Canaan under the Israelites. And then um, there's a song by Deborah and Barak that they sing at the end of Judges chapter 5. So this is right after a military victory as he is restoring them. Look at this. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And then here's the period of restoration. It says, and the land had shachat, is what it says. It's rest. It's peace. It's quiet. For 40 years. This is restoration. God delivered them. Now, biblically, when you see 40 years, it is 40 years, but the other thing to know is that usually is an indication of one generation. So this is why, how do you get back in this cycle again? Well, the reason you get back in the cycle is because um, you, 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 you see yourself restored, you remember how terrible it was, and it is innately within you, and then you've got the next generation that comes up after you, and you have to go, oh, don't try that. Don't try that. Trust me, it did not go well. But they haven't lived through it, and so we're, the older generation has to communicate to the younger generation, and oftentimes the younger generation wants to figure it out for themselves. They don't really intrinsically feel the weight and the pain of what they had to walk through. They didn't experience it. We did a um, summer camp when I was a, a youth pastor. <coughs> Excuse me. We had hundreds of kids. We had dozens and dozens of adults that were working that would like take a week off work to come and just invest in these students for for an entire week and it was just it was awesome it was the highlight of the year and then we'd do a big like we'd baptize a bunch of kids it was just incredible incredible time well when we had little kids um nikki wasn't able to go because i had to go and help lead this thing and so she wasn't able to go and so I would come back from camp, and I remember one time in particular, I came in, I kind of opened the door, and she was in the shower, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm here. And she goes, oh, great, how was it? And I just start yelling over the shower curtain, oh my gosh, it was so amazing, God worked in amazing ways, and here's what I love. And I just had like this string of words that was like not even remotely connected. It was just all this stuff that I had just experienced just going, wah, and just like pouring over that I wanted to tell her about. And I remember distinctly the first time she goes, great. Can we talk when I get out of the shower? Yes. And as much as she wants to hear all the details and as much as she will sit and listen, she didn't experience it with me. And then a few years later, she was such a trooper. She would bring our kids, when they got a little bit older, she would bring them to camp and she'd start to experience it. And then we would get home after having a shared experience, and I would go, oh my gosh, that was so amazing, and she would go, oh, I know, and we would just go on and on and on and on and on, and we both understood, like our hearts were just overwhelmed because we've lived through it, and we've experienced it. 
And what happens with Israel is there's a generation that hasn't experienced it. They're having to take the advice from the older generation, and they're not willing to heed it. Does that sound familiar? This is, listen, if you're, if you're here and you're a young person, I'll let you decide if you fall in that camp or not. Um, this is not knocking on you. I want you to hear something really, really important. Your generation is told, don't listen to the ones that have gone on before you. And granted, those of us, the older generation, we probably have some things we're clinging to that we need to let go of. Well, we did it this way. You should do it this way. I get it. But I want to just offer this as well. You have two major voices that speak into your life, in your young life. One are all your peers who have lived exactly as long as you have. And then some that have lived longer than you. And the bent in our culture is to turn down the volume over here and turn up the volume over here. And I'm going to encourage you to do the exact opposite. To turn up the volume of those who have walked before you. To hear wise counsel. We don't want you to make the mistakes that we made. Now, Right next, it takes them back into rebellion because there's a generation that didn't go through it. It says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. So it went right from, you know, they gave them rest for 40 years and then it just kind of shift gears without hitting the clutch here. It says, they did what was evil and God gave them over to Midian seven years. The Midianites were a descendant. Abraham actually had another wife, um, Keturah, who had a son named Midian, and so that was this, this tribe that was birthed from that. Um, this is, I think, the fourth time that I count that the Midianites have already oppressed them in this, just in this book, and we're literally on chapter six. Um, they were, uh, the Midianites were from kind of south, southeast, and they would come in and attack Israel. And it says, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. The Midianites were kind of a ragtag group of uh, nomadic people for the most part, but they wanted this land. Uh, where the Israelites were, and so they kept losing, and they kept going to oppress them, and they'd win some, and then they'd lose some, and win some, and lose some. And this was also happening with Israel's other enemies, so the Midianites said, here's a good idea. I hate Israel. Do you hate Israel? Yes, me too. Great. Let's go together, and let's start wearing them down, and let's coordinate attacks and things. And so you've got this, there, these different tribes, different nations, if you will, had a common hatred of God's people, Israel. And so they started to attack them, and look how bad it it got. Whenever the Israelites, verse 3, planted crops, the Midianites, and here's some others, the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste to the land as they came in. I don't see another story in the book of Judges where they go into this much detail about what happened and how horrible it actually was. This is this nomadic people, the, um, the, the Midianites now come and attack. And so what happens? It says that they, the Israelites uh, made for themselves dens in the mountains and caves and strongholds. Like they went from settled cities to nomads because the nomads went in and wanted to settle their cities. All right. Um, you, you can see it says they come like locusts. They couldn't count all the camels, their, their livestock, their crops. Everything would just get devastated by them. I think he's really wanting us to just feel the weight of how bad this really is 
for Israel in that day. And it says, Israel was brought very low. Or you could translate that, um, they were languishing. They were weary. Or they felt very small. They felt very powerless because of Midian. You ever felt that way? By the way, I'll just pause for a moment. You ever felt that way where you go, I'm serving God, and it just feels like all the, enemy of God, all the enemies of God are winning? What do we do in those moments? Cry out to God. Look at verse 6, at the end of verse 6. It says, And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. The people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Now there's a debate here about is this actual repentance or not. I'm going to say yes, it is for a number of reasons. Um, throughout the book, really mainly through the Old Testament, when this phrase comes up about crying out for help, it's a term of sorrow, but it is a term of repentance as well. They're realizing the error of their ways, and if you look, who are they crying out to? They're crying out to the Lord. They are, they are turning to him for help. And I think it's important to note that sometimes God can use dire circumstances of all degrees to call us back to him. And oftentimes going through difficult things can be an opportunity to really stick it to Satan. Oh, you want me to not know that he's still with me because things are so bad. Uh Uh-uh. I'm going to turn to him. Look at what happened. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet. This is the beginning of sending a rescuer to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt, brought you out of the house of slavery. He's reminding them their history. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And he is saying, Israel, I told you what was going to happen. If you turned from me, I told you exactly what was going to happen. It was not going to go well for you. And it's like the Israelites were going, we want to live in rebellion, but we want the same blessing as though we were walking closely with you. If you could do that, that would be great. Amen. Like that's how they're, that's how they're living their life. We made our bed, but we don't want to sleep in it. This is um, the Church of Jesus Christ today. Local churches do this all the time. We'll say the Bible's a pretty good thing, but we'll take out this, we'll update this, we'll ignore this, we'll change this. And then we're going, I'm not really going to be faithful, but I still want the full blessing of God. And I think God in his righteousness, and I think this is an act of love, would say you will not have it. I want you to turn to me. A very simple way to say this of if you're in a spot where you are going, I don't really sense, feel, or know. Like, can I know for sure, Emmanuel, God with us, God is with me. When I'm looking around what's going on in the, uh, you know, the world, what's going on in the nation, what's going on in the state, what's going on in my own family, what's going on in my own heart. Sometimes it might not be that God left you, but maybe we have left him. It may not be that God left us, but that we left him. Now, let me, let me just be real clear. I'm only going to give this caveat once. Please, please, please don't hear me say that if you're in a bind right now, it's because of something that you've done. That is, I I don't know your situation. I don't know what's going on. 
There's lots of reasons it could be there. Nor is it like, well, if you do bad things, and bad things will necessarily happen, because grace oftentimes says the exact opposite. Nor, if you're in a bad spot, and I just go, well, just behave now, just be good, then God is now obligated to bring you whatever. That, that's not what I'm trying to say here. Simply what I'm trying to say, and what we see in this text, is sometimes in the character and nature of God, what he will say is, my people are going to think that they are self-sufficient, and they will do it on their own. I'll let them. And let's see how that goes for them, and hopefully that will bring them back to me. Especially when it comes, I said, I've said self-sufficiency a few times. That's, the, that's probably the big American sin right now, isn't it? I don't really need God. All I need is me. How's that working out for us? I told you earlier, I said, um, when it says they cried out for help to the Lord, <coughs> um, some people think that's not an act of repentance. I do, uh, for several reasons, which we'll see in just a moment. Um, but I, this is what I want you to see from this text here today, that oftentimes um, the consequences of our sin can be a thing that leads us to repentance. So one of the reasons people say, well, this isn't really, this isn't really them crying out for repentance. This is them just going, God, just stop all this bad stuff from happening. So it's like if, um, if Nikki comes to me and she says, hey, you know, you really, my wife Nikki, she says, you know, you really upset me, you really hurt me, and I go, oh, I'm so, so, so sorry. I'm really, really sorry. And then if she goes, oh, well, what are you sorry for? And I go, I don't know, but I'm sorry. <laughs> Somehow I know I did something, and I'm really, really sorry. Okay, she, she's not interested in me just figuring out how to say some words, I mean, I'll admit, I'm sure I did something wrong, but it's really in that moment, if I'm just going, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, what am I saying? I'm saying, I just don't want the consequences. I, I don't want the unsettled house we're about to have. I don't want to be walking on eggshells. And so oftentimes, it, it looks like repentance to say you're sorry, but really it's just going, I don't want the consequences. Instead of me looking at her and going, like, she, she doesn't want me to just go, I broke a rule, I will acknowledge it, and I will apologize, and now we shall move on. She wants me to understand, like, that hurt. Like you say you love me and it hurt. And so repentance is actually me going, it's not just I'm trying to get out of the doghouse or I'm just trying to get out of the consequences. It's I have hurt somebody that I love. Or think about like a kid that gets in trouble, they gotta go to their room and so you send them to their room and you go, you gotta go in your room, you can't bring your phone or your iPad or your Kindle or your laptop or your beeper or whatever things they have, you can't have it in your room. They're cut off from the world, like painful to a kid, right? And so you send them to their, you send them to their room and then they're, in their mind, at least it was when I was that age, I'd be going, what do I need to do to get all those things back? What do I need to do to get out of the room? I will learn how to say sorry. I will learn how to say the words that mom and dad want so I can be okay with them again. And the reality is that's not really repentance. That's more of what do I need to do to get back what I already want? I just want to get out of consequences. So like a kid, for example, I would just say, we got some students here. I would say, go look at your parents in the eye. Your, your parents have no desire to just go, you know, bad child, and just like punish you for some, cra well, I hope they don't have for some crazy power trip or something like that, but they're doing this going, I love you more than anybody, and so I am willing to do this because I love you more than anybody, and you go and start looking them in the eye and start realizing it's not like I just broke a list of the house rules, it's this is, this is my mom, this is my dad, I've, I've, I've hurt them, and I love them. That's how we start to move to repentance. But you see what happens is sometimes the, the consequences of our sin, the consequences of us ignoring God, the consequences of our self-sufficiency can turn us towards genuine repentance. 
Or another example would be, let's suppose you're, um, I, I've just promoted you all to top-level executives in a major corporation, all right? I know some of you are retired and you're going, I quit, like real quick, I understand, you like retirement. But pretend you're a, you're a major executive in a company. And you have also been embezzling some money from the company, just skimming a little bit here, and there's shame on you, by the way. You've been skimming this money, right? And, uh, and then you hear the board wants to meet with you. You're not thinking anything of it, and you walk in. There's a couple board members that want to meet with you, and you go, oh, I like the board. I've been here a while. I've, I get along with them. And so you walk into the room, and there's somebody, and you're going, oh, that's the guy I don't really know on the board. And so you kind of exchange names, and you sit down, and you go, Anyway, what's, uh, what's going on? And he slides some papers across, and you start seeing all these financial reports, and you go, oh my goodness, I am busted. You don't really know this guy, but you do know this, that um, you're pretty close to getting a big bonus just a couple months. And by the way, your retirement, your 401k is going to be vested in a couple months as well, and then no one else knows this because you haven't told anybody, but um, you've also got another job lined up at another company that you're going to be taking in a couple months, but now you're there and you're busted. What are you trying to do? Probably we slip into self-preservation mode. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, you know what, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll have to do some check-in. Let me see if I can stall for a couple months to, before I get you an answer, you know, because you're gonna be busted. You might get sued. You're certainly gonna have to pay that back, and then no way is this other company gonna hire you when they know. So all that's happening is you're going, oh my goodness, and it's self-preservation mode. And so you're looking at him and going, what do I do to get out of the consequence that my sin has brought me? And then so you're having that conversation, you're in one mindset, and then all of a sudden the door opens and somebody walks in and says, sorry I'm late. And your heart just melts a little bit because you know who it is. This is another board member that has been an advocate for you for a decade. When you've made mistakes, he has stood between you and the board and taken the arrows for you. This is, um, you know, when, when your wife got sick or your family member got sick, he, uh, he, he sent some personal money towards you just to help you out. You've been to dinner. Uh, he's been in your house. You've been in his house. Like, you have this personal, deep connection with this one person on the board. And then he walks in and sits down, and your eyes meet. And he doesn't have to say a word. And my guess is, if that's me, I might just burst into tears. Why? Because I love him. He loves me. We have a relationship. I'm not just trying to get out of consequences now. I have sinned against somebody that I love. Our sin, our repentance, is not just that first sort of cold way of going, I just want out of the consequences, but God can use those times to say, remember, you have sinned against a God that you love. This is why the great commandment, love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, strength. Christians, do you see why he says, love God? Why that comes up over and over and over and over. And as we grow in our love for God, all of a sudden, we start seeing our sin completely differently. It's not the list of things and we go, oh, I blew that, I blew that, I blew that, I feel sort of guilty. It's, I've sinned against somebody that I love. And so I can go to him now and I know that he loves me, that he pours out his love on me. 
That is actual repentance, and that's what I believe is happening here. And God is about to send a deliverer. This is why we love God, is because you're going to see a picture through this man named Gideon that is a picture of Christ and what he would do. That in their just, can I say stupidity, in their just cycle after cycle after cycle after cycle, we would all be looking at someone and going, do you not get it yet? Okay, the first time I forgive you a lot, the next time not as much, 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 and eventually you go, forget you. And watch what he does. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth, that's a tree, at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. He is down in the winepress, hitting the wheat, tossing it up, so the bad stuff goes and the good grain falls to the ground. He is hiding because he is Scared. They are trampled. They're living in fear. They cry out to God, and God appears, and God sends a rescuer. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. This is pretty ironic. Here's Gideon hiding from the Midianites, and then this, the, Lord appear, the angel of the Lord appears and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Like it sounds almost like a little sarcasm there. And Gideon said, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? That's the question we're answering. And where are his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us and give us in a, given us into the hand of Midian? Gideon is going, I love you, I trust you, I don't understand. We don't understand. And the Lord's turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. What he's saying here, when it says, go in this might of yours, it could look like, a, um, like well, you've just, you've just got it within you, and you just go, Gideon, and you're just so smart and so strong and all those things. That's not what he's talking about, because here he is, like, you know, hiding and tossing the stuff up, because he's cowering. He doesn't realize it yet, but the might that he has is only God's strength and not his own. Save Israel from the hand of Midian. He says, do not I send you. In other words, I can't do this, God. And God would go, you're right. You don't suffer from the sin of self-sufficiency. In fact, Gideon gives him his resume, and he said, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So here's what happened. Um, you have this uh, rebellion that started to happen. You have the people cry out in repentance. And now God is sending a rescuer and he is going to restore them and he's gonna use this man, Gideon. God has been there the whole time. But the Israelites turned their head from him. They looked inward. We can do this. Hey, God, God boosted us and kind of got us to here. Thanks, Lord. Now we'll take it from here. Thank you very much. The rest of the story I'll summarize quickly. Um, Gideon goes through, he rips down a, a pagan altar, um, and then God keeps saying, I don't want anybody to suffer from self-sufficiency. I don't want anybody to have the huge army and then go, wow, look, because they had a huge army, that's why they won. He, God says, I want, I want everybody to say, God and God alone has saved me. I don't want anybody to win a battle and go, uh, as he says, lest, my, lest they say my own hand has saved me. And so this is the story, you may know this, where there's 32,000 soldiers and, the, and God goes, anybody who's scared can leave, and 22,000 of them leave. So they're down to 10,000. 
This is not a good military strategy. And then they go down and they go to this, this river, this brook, and they start to drink water with 10,000 people. God says, watch how they, watch how some drink and watch how some others drink. And, um, and he sends certain ones home. And it is now 300 people. And God keeps saying, keep doing it. Because I don't want you to win and then say, we did this. I want you to say, God and God alone did this. So they go, they attack Midian, they blow the trumpets, they break the jars, and uh, they win, and Gideon starts sending messengers out to all people to basically say, come get the spoils of our victory and help us, uh, help us take out Midian for good. There's more victories. And then there's a strange story near the end of the story of Gideon that he takes his golden ephod, and um, I'll summarize it by saying it drew him and others into sin. And so after Gideon had done all this, as he has heard from the Lord, as God has taken him and used him as the deliverer and the rescuer, he, it now drew them into sin near the end of his life. And it says, as soon as he died, everybody chased after the pagan gods again. The story of Gideon is about God getting the glory. And they're looking around and going, Why, where is God? And God's saying, I haven't left. You've left me. He moved them from just wanting consequence avoidance to this love relationship of we love you. We don't want to sin against you. We, we want you. We want Emmanuel, God with us. We want relationship with you. And so I'll just say it again, that there's times where if we're going, where is Emmanuel? Why, why are these things happening? Sometimes it might be something in our own self-sufficiency that we have run toward and God is saying, I'll let you run a little bit, but come back to me. And when we do, he's going, I haven't left. Here I am. This is why Christians live our lives how we do. It's not just a big list of rules. We're just trying to check them all off. That's pharisaical living. That's exhausting. This is we love God. We don't want to sin against him. If you're not a Christian, can I encourage you to turn to him this Christmas season? To come to him in faith and repentance and reject a life of self-sufficiency. I've got it all figured out. And I gotta say this for Christians as well to say if you're living and you, you go, I've got my faith but I'm also sort of toying with this sort of self-sufficiency that never goes well. And at the end of it, there is a God, Emmanuel, God with us that says, come to me. Turn to me. And the joy that we have is we know when we do turn to him, that he doesn't forgive like you and I forgive, that goes, okay, that's enough. Over and over and over, through all the cycles, he's, he's a God of restoration. Gideon was one of the greatest judges. Let me give you a few facts about that. His story is the longest in the book. The Lord seems to be more visibly active in his story than, any other, uh, than anybody else in the book. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, but doesn't appear to any other judge that I could see. Um, there's centuries later, uh, Isaiah actually talks about um, uh, Gideon's victory over Midian and calls it a significant victory. He's listed first, and um, Samuel has this list of deliverers, and he's listed first. There's all these parallels between him and Moses. The people actually sought to make him a king. He was that influential in their day. And let me just read this from one of the commentaries I love. It says, yet for all this, Gideon was conflicted and failed badly at one point by making a golden ephod that drew him and others into sin. That's what I referenced earlier. And so Gideon is the turning point in the downward spiral of the judges. At the end of his life, it goes right back down again. 
in both his greatness and his deficiency, Gideon points to the need for a better deliverer, a king who will truly keep the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. This Christmas season, no matter where you are, turn to Emmanuel. He is with you. He loves you and serve him with joy.